Yep. We'll be able to continue those conversations at the end of our service over the refreshments. Um, but let's just pray now as we come to look at God's word together. Let's ask for his help and let's ask for him to do his work among us by his spirit. Let's pray. Father, your word, when carried into our hearts by the power of your spirit, it brings transformation. And Father, there's something very supernatural and powerful that can happen in these moments as we open your word. And we pray, Father, that you would send forth your word and your spirit and fresh wind would just blow through our lives, our hearts and our minds. And, and we pray this morning, Father, that you would come by your spirit through your word and strengthen our faith. We pray that you would build into us roots and foundations, that we would be those oaks of righteousness, standing strong in your strength for the display of your splendor. So bless us, Lord, as we look at your word together. Give us light, understanding, and help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please do open with me to the uh, book of Habakkuk that Ruth read uh, the first chapter of earlier. We're going to spend the next four weeks in this little book that packs quite a big punch. Anytime I come to the start of a series on an Old Testament book, I like to remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 15, 4. Speaking of the Old Testament scriptures, a little book like Habakkuk, he says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This little book of Habakkuk, though not all that well known, is in our Bibles for our instruction. It is here to strengthen our faith, to help us endure through hard times, and it is here to encourage us. And the way this little book gets those big things done is both unique and rather remarkable. Where in all the other prophetic books, we hear the prophetic authors preaching. We hear the prophets exhorting God's people to greater faithfulness. The book of Habakkuk is much more personal in nature. What do I mean by that? Well, in this book, we don't hear Habakkuk the prophet preaching. We're actually invited in this book into his prayer closet. And we're given a glimpse into his own personal struggles with his faith. And his main struggle is with the question of how God can be good and sovereign when there is such chaos and injustice in the world. I wonder, have you ever struggled with that question? In this book, we are taken on a journey. We are allowed a unique privilege of witnessing, witnessing the progress of the prophet Habakkuk from his struggles with God's ways to what we could call his movement towards confident contentment with the goodness of God in all his ways. 
Now, just to see this progression and journey, look right at the end of the book, chapter 3, verse 17, please. At the end of the book, we get this just beautiful prayer from Habakkuk. Chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Now, there's a glimpse of where Habakkuk ends up in the book with this settled confident contentment in the sovereign goodness of God. We could call it he ends up with a no matter what faith. No matter what, Lord, even if everything is stripped away from me, I will rejoice in you and your goodness. But he certainly doesn't start there in this book. Look now at chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, where the book begins. Habakkuk's crying out to God, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? That is the same man who prayed the prayer in chapter 3 verse 17 at the beginning of the book, just perplexed, confused, just crying out, Lord, I do not understand your will and ways. And this book is about Habakkuk's journey from complaining before God to his arriving at a place of confidence in God. It follows his movement from fear to faith, from worry to worship. And here's the beautiful thing that this book does for us. This book invites us to join him in that journey from fear to faith, from worry to worship, complaining to confidence. The goal of this book is to help us discover for ourselves that settled, confident contentment in the goodness of all God's ways, no matter what. And now, before we get too ahead of ourselves, let's just deal with some introductory matters because of how um, this little book's tucked away in the Old Testament. Many of you maybe have never even read it, uh, or this is the first time you've heard a series on it. So let's just deal with a few introductory matters, a who, a when, a what, and a why. First of all, who? Who was Habakkuk? Well, we know very little about him. While with most of the other prophetic books, we're given information about where the prophet is from, or we're told who they're the son of, or we're told the times that they're serving and prophesying in, the kings they served under. With Habakkuk, look at what we're told in verse 1, just simply this, the oracle or the burden that Habakkuk the prophet saw. That's all we're told about him. He was a prophet. That means one called and set apart to preach God's word amongst God's people and the nations. We're not given anything else about him, but I think this tells us something. It tells us that the message is more important than the messenger. When did Habakkuk minister? Well, from the internal evidence in the book, we understand that he was preaching and ministering on the historical eve 
of a Chaldean or Babylonian invasion of Israel. Now, what does all that mean? Well, the Chaldean Empire was a very powerful world empire, and it was on the rise um, early in the 600s BC. The Chaldeans, or the Babylonians as they're well known, they were flexing their muscles and seeking to expand their territories by invading smaller nations. A modern day equivalent of the setting would be like someone in Ukraine writing in their prayer journal their prayers in the months leading up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. God's people were in a state of disarray in the early 600s BC. They had a weak and sinful king, and God's people had just lost their way, morally speaking. They were in total disregard of God's law and ways. So that's the situation Habakkuk was ministering into. We'll see that as we work through the book. What was his message? Well, where in many of the prophetic books we hear the message of the prophet himself, we don't really hear the message of Habakkuk himself in this book in some ways. The message of this book comes from us understanding the book as a whole. The book's message is seen in the movement from Habakkuk's struggle with his faith and his complaints before God to the place where he becomes strong in his faith and confident in God. And the turning point for Habakkuk in the book comes from something God says to him right in the middle of the book in chapter 2, verse 4. And you can look down at it. Right at the end of verse 4 in chapter 2, the Lord speaks to Habakkuk and he says, the righteous shall live by faith. And in that statement from God, Habakkuk learned that God was calling him to trust the sovereign goodness of God's ways even when he couldn't understand them, even when Habakkuk couldn't understand them. And that is the main claim or the burden of this book. This is where it meets us. It's here to help us learn to trust in the good and sovereign purposes of God despite the confusing circumstances we sometimes find ourselves in in this life. It is here to help us learn to wait on God's timing with patience. Why does this book matter? How is this relevant? Well, the life of faith is what we could call a contoured landscape. There are hills, valleys, days of delight in our Christian lives and days of drudgery in our Christian lives. There are seasons when we walk in close communion with God and feel like we're spiritually flourishing, and there are seasons where we can pray and pray, but it feels like the heavens are closed. We can feel like we are spiritually dry and languishing. And in those moments, in the valleys, when we are confronted with the silence of heaven, we can sometimes become disheartened and confused. And perhaps what we wonder more than anything is, have we done something wrong? Is God still happy with me? Well, this book invites us to a journey with one who is honestly crying out to God in his confusion. And it is here to help us find our voice and our faith when we don't understand what God is doing in our lives. This book is here to strengthen our faith 
when we cannot discern God's hand. And listen, we all need this. Some of you I know as your pastor right now are in the midst of very difficult circumstances, and your questions are, why, Lord? How long? What are you doing? Do you care? And if you're not there right now, one day you will be. And this book is here to build into us this no matter what faith, to give us something strong, steel in our backs. And the first chapter that we're going to look at this morning, after those words of introduction, is so helpful. This first chapter is so helpful because it is here to help us learn how do we relate to God in those times when we're really confused about His ways. When we just don't sense God, we feel like heaven is shut up, we don't feel like there's any understanding or, or insight to what God is doing, how do we relate to God in those times? Can we pray honest prayers? Can we really let Him know how we're feeling? How do we pray when we're broken? And when the pain is so great that we just don't even know what to say. Well, what I want to do just now is walk through the first three main sections of this opening chapter. And I want to see three lessons on how to relate to God when we are really confused about what He is doing in our lives. How to relate to God when we're really confused about what He's doing in our lives. Lesson one. When we are confused with what God is doing, we are to relate to God honestly. That is what we see here in verses 2 to 4. In verse 2, we meet Habakkuk crying out to God in a prayer of lament. Look at how he prays, O Lord. You ever been there? How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Habakkuk, this godly prophet, looks around the state of his own people and he just laments at the ungodliness he sees in the culture around him. He sees violence and iniquity, destruction and violence, strife and contention. In verse 4, he says, Lord, your law is paralyzed. Now, what does he mean there? Well, God gave his law to restrain sin. And Habakkuk is saying there in verse 4, Lord, your law is not restraining your people at all. It looks, it, it's like your law is a frozen historic relic in the British Museum. No one's paying any heed to it. Now, we know that in the early 600s BC, that was exactly the state of God's people in the southern kingdom of Judah. We know this because Jeremiah spoke a word to this generation in Jeremiah chapter 22. Here's what Jeremiah said of the people of that day. They have eyes and heart only for dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence. Habakkuk is like a godly pastor seeing his flock make bad decisions, losing their way, walking away from God, and he's just crying out to God to intervene. But notice the real substance of his lament in the opening couple of verses is not so much what's going on among God's people. The substance of his lament 
is what Habakkuk perceives as the problem of the silence and inactivity of God. That's his problem. Did you see it? Verse 2, how long will I cry to you for help and you won't hear? You're not hearing God. Why do you make me see iniquity and you idly do nothing? Now, many times along the contoured landscape of the life of faith, we will find ourselves in circumstances where we just cannot understand God and his ways. It could be a time of grief health crisis, a time when you're praying and seeking God's will for direction or about your singleness, your childlessness, a time when you're praying for the salvation of those you love around you, a time when you're praying to grow as a Christian. You might find yourself crying out to God and you just don't see any answer. You may feel like God is just sitting there disinterestedly doing nothing and you really struggle. How do we relate to God in such moments? Will we learn here from Habakkuk to come to him with the language of honest lament? Have you learned the biblical prayer language of lament? God wants us to know this language we know this because he has given us many psalms of lament, like Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? As well as a selection of psalms, there are two whole books in the Bible that are there to teach us how to lament. What are they? Lamentations and Job. Lament is a prayer language of the Bible. And it is there because God knows in the brokenness of life in this fallen world, there will be times where we need to use it. What is lament? Well, it is not just an expression of sadness and tears. It is what we could call a gut-wrenching honesty about the realities of life, it is a depth of groaning expressed before God where we express to God how we feel about our struggles with honesty. Can God handle our honesty before him in prayer? Yes. He already knows the reality of what's going on in our hearts. And he wants us to pour all out to him. Is lamenting and questioning God, not an act of faithlessness? No, not if it is coming from a place of faith. Lament can be a real demonstration of trust in God because it demonstrates an unwillingness to let go of God no matter how awful the situation is we're passing through. Maybe a way to help you understand it is to think of this. Lament is the opposite of despair. Despair is when hope is lost. Lament is when you have nowhere else to go and you cry out to God with hope in Him. C.S. Lewis has said, we should bring to God what is really in us, not what ought to be in us. 
Our questions, our pain, our anger can be poured out to the infinite one and he will not be damaged by it. In fact, think about this. He patiently accommodates our lament. Like a parent who patiently listens to an angry teenager railing at them. The teenager thinks they know it all, but they don't realize how little they know. What are the marks of a prayer of lament? An honest cry from the heart about our pain. An asking of questions like why and how long. An articulation of what we want God to do. Intervene. Give me understanding. And then there is usually a reaffirmation of hope in God. Those are the marks of a prayer of lament. And if you find yourself in a hard place today, you're confused and you hardly know how to pray, maybe it's the language of lament that you need so that you can articulate in an honest way your pain before God. I would encourage you, if that's you, take a moment, even today, to write a lament down. Be honest. Bring your pain to God. Find, perhaps along with that, a hymn of lament. I am so thankful that there are some modern hymn writers who are discovering the fact that for a long time, the church has lost the the language of lament. And there are some, some hymn writers now who are recognizing that the church needs to express its brokenness before the Lord in sung worship. Think of our brothers and sisters from Iran this morning. Some who have had to flee very hard situations, who are now in very hard situations, in hotels, as families, not knowing where to go or what to do. How do they articulate their pain before God? Well, listen to the hymn we sang earlier. Our sorrows leave us weak and worn, surrounded by our fears. We look to heaven through feeble faith and tears. How long, O Lord, how long? And then listen to the last verse. But we will trust your steadfast love. Your grace will be our song. You bring new mercies with every rising sun. How long, O Lord, how long? That's a hymn where a hymn writer has realized the need for the church to express its lament. And I know some of you right now need a song like that to express how you're feeling. How do we relate to God when we are so confused with what he is doing? First, with honesty. Habakkuk is more honest than most of us are with God. Let's learn to be honest and learn that biblical language of lament. Second lesson, when we are confused with God, how do we relate to him? Second, we relate to God humbly. This is what we see and learn from verses 5 to 11. We see in these verses God's response to Habakkuk's prayer. In verses 5 and 6, we now see God explain to Habakkuk what he purposes to do to judge the sin that Habakkuk sees all around him. Verse 5, God says to Habakkuk, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. 
For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. God says to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, you need to slow down and look again. You need to look more closely at what is going on among the nations. For I am at work on a higher plane than you could ever imagine. This reminds me of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There is a part of the book where the children who have entered Narnia have met a beaver who can talk called Mr. Beaver. He tells them about the darkness that has settled over the land of Narnia and the oppression that is being experienced under the white witch. But then Mr. Beaver says to the children, but Aslan is on the move. And Aslan in C.S. Lewis's book, books represents Christ. Aslan is on the move. And Lewis then continues the narration, and he says this, And now a very curious thing happened. The moment Mr. Beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in their insides. The Lord responds to Habakkuk, and he says, Habakkuk, I am behind a series of events that are going to transform history in your day. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. In fact, this instrument of my judgment has already been mobilized. And then in verses 7 to 11, we get a description of the mobilization of the Chaldeans. We hear of the swiftness and the fierceness of this people who sweep in and carry out God's judgment verse 8, we read of their horses being swifter than leopards. Their horsemen press proudly on. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. God says, Habakkuk, look, I am at work here on a, on a canvas, on a plane that is higher than anything you could ever have dreamed of. I'm raising up a nation to carry out my judgment on the sin you see around you. But here's what I really want us to focus in on here in this part. Habakkuk thought that God was not hearing, not acting, and idly looking at wrong. And God had to correct him, saying, Habakkuk, you need to look more closely. You need to learn to read between the lines of what you see in history to know that I'm sovereign. I am always at work. The Lord is saying here to Habakkuk, the reason you cannot understand is because you're so small and your understanding is so limited. Habakkuk, I am at work. The canvas I work on is bigger than anything you could ever imagine. Don't forget, Habakkuk, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts than your thoughts. Habakkuk, humble yourself and recognize your limitations. When we're confused with God's ways, we need to learn to relate to God humbly, to recognize how limited and finite we are in our understanding God's ways. We think we can prescribe the answer to our prayers to God. 
We think we know what He should do. This was the lesson that Job learned at the end of the book of Job. After all the questions and all the confusion and all the brokenness, the Lord speaks, and is it what, 77 questions that He asks Job in the end of the book? Where were you when I stretched out the heavens? And He just gives Job question after question about God's sovereignty, God's power, God's majesty, and Job at the end of it feels just tiny, and he's like, okay, Lord, I recognize how finite and limited my understanding is. And he never gets the answer to his why question, but he gets a fuller revelation of the majesty of God that satisfies his restless heart. Maybe like Habakkuk this morning, we need to look again at our situation and to relate to God with a fresh humility, recognizing how little we actually do know and remembering again that God is sovereign and God is at work even though we can't discern His hand. We are to relate to God when we're confused with His ways, humbly. The third and final lesson here on how we are to relate to God when we're confused with His ways is we are to hold on. What do I mean by that? Well, we're to hold on to what we know to be true about God, even when we're really confused. In verses 12 and 12 to 17, Habakkuk now responds again to God. And we see on the one hand, Habakkuk is confident in God, and on the other, he is really confused with God. In verse 12, we see Habakkuk's confidence. He reaffirms there what he knows to be true about God. He affirms, first, his belief in God's eternal nature and character. Are you not from everlasting? You are my God, my Holy One, my rock. Second, he affirms God's purposes. He recognizes that the Lord has ordained Babylon or the Chaldeans as a judgment. I see God, I understand. You're going to use them as your instrument of judgment. I understand you're at work. And then third, he affirms God's commitment to his people. And he does that in that little line in verse 12, we shall not die. Now, what he means there is you're going to judge us, but we know you're not going to wipe out your people completely because you have promises to sustain your people until the day that the Messiah comes, until Christ comes. You're not finished with us yet. That's Habakkuk's reaffirming in his own heart before God what he knows to be true. But then look at how in verses 13, and 13 to 17, we see that he's confident in God, but he's confused. He's still perplexed. And he's perplexed here because he cannot fathom how God, who is of purer eyes than to see evil and who cannot look at wrong, He's confused that how can this God use the wicked Babylonians as an instrument of judgment without in some way compromising his own goodness and holiness? Habakkuk is deeply troubled in verses 13 to 17 again 
because he believes God is being inconsistent with his holy character. Essentially, he's saying, God, how can you take up the Babylonians as an instrument of judgment without getting your hands dirty? They're so wicked. They're so bad. How can they be an instrument in your hands? How can you be in some way behind their badness and their wickedness? How does that jive with your holiness? He's completely perplexed. He says, God, you're being inconsistent. I spoke to Jimmy about this earlier in the week, and he said something quite funny. He said he could imagine Habakkuk being a bald man because he was pulling out his hair when God said, I'm going to use the Babylonians. Habakkuk was like, what? How can you do that? We've been here, haven't we? When we've observed things in the news or we've observed things in our lives and we just like, God, what are you doing? How can this be good? Verse 17, Habakkuk just says, Lord, are they just going to get away with their sinfulness forever? Are they to keep on emptying their nets, mercilessly killing nations forever? In chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk, listen to what he says to the Lord. I'll take my stand at my watchpost. I'll station myself in the tower. I'll look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. See what Habakkuk's saying there? He's saying, look, Lord, I'm going to take my seat. I'm going to fold my arms, and I'm waiting for your answer. In one way, he's confident in God, but in the other, he's really confused. And as he sits with those arms folded, waiting for God's answer, well, if you want to hear God's answer, you're going to have to come back next week, because <laughs> that's what's going to be next week's sermon. But what I want us to see now, just as we move to a close, is that Habakkuk, in his confusion, still moves towards God by affirming with certainty what he knows to be true about God's character. When we don't understand God's ways, this is a good thing for us to do. We affirm what we do know to be true about God in the midst of our confusion. There are so many times in which we do not understand God's will and ways, but even in those times, there are some truths we do know and that we can hold on to. And you know that there are three that I hold most closely when I am confused with God and His ways. I speak of them often. Three truths that are like an anchor for my soul. Number one, God is always sovereign. Number two, God is always good. Number three, God always has a good plan. And then I like to add, even in this. I know those truths are true because they are clearly revealed in God's Word. And when there are things happening all around me that I cannot understand, or I'm praying and it feels like heaven is silent, or I just feel like the Lord is totally inactive as I cry out to him. I can say, well, Lord, here's things, three things that I know. I don't feel them, but I know they're true. You're sovereign, you're good, and you have a good plan even in this. And you hold on to what you know to be true in the midst of your confusion. 
I think that's why Habakkuk, Habakkuk uses the language in verse 12 of the Lord as his rock. My rock. Because when you're in that place of confusion, man, you need a place for your feet to stand. As well as remembering those three glorious truths, the sovereignty, the goodness, and the providence of God, in those moments of confusion, it's also really important for us to remember the character of God in the way Habakkuk reminded himself of the character of God. We can remember and preach to ourselves, this is the God who sent his son, Jesus, into the world to rescue us from our plight in sin. That's the heart of this God, the God who gives his best to save us and love us. At the cross, think of it, everything looked terrible. Jesus cried out his own lament, why have you forsaken me? He went through his valley with his honest lament, and yet, as we would have stood by and said, God, what are you doing? God could have responded to us and said, look again, for I am doing a work in your day that you couldn't believe even if it was explained to you. I am working on a higher plan. I'm doing way more than you could ever ask or imagine. This is the Savior Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us, who has made a promise to us, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. So we can know because God sent his son in love towards us, he will also give us everything else we need for life and godliness. Even when he's silent, we know he is there because Jesus has said, I'll be with you always. So even when he is silent, he is there. Even when he is silent, he is there. Think of the beauty of Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you're with me. That's the facts. In the shadow of the valley of death, when you don't feel him, he is there. So in your confusion, preach the truth of what you know about God to yourself, even when you don't feel it. Hold on to what you know to be true when there's so much that confuses you. So let's wrap this up and conclude. How do we relate to God in pain and confusion? Honestly, with the voice and biblical language of lament, humbly, recognizing our limitations of understanding, holding on to what we know to be true about the character and nature of God. And we see the most glorious example of one who did this in our Lord Jesus Christ. In his own suffering, he was honest as he cried out to God. In Gethsemane and then on the cross, he was humble as he laid everything down and surrendered to the will of the Father. 
And in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, we're told that he held on to the joy set before him, that he was completing the Father's will in redeeming God's people so that they could be saved from their sin and healed from all of their brokenness. Through the week, I was listening to a song by the modern hymn writer Andrew Peterson. The song is called Always Good. And I want to close with the words of this hymn. Peterson writes in this beautiful hymn, My God, my God, be near me. There's nowhere else to go. And Lord, if you can hear me, please help your child to know that you're always good, always good. As we try to believe what is not meant to be understood, Will you help us to trust your intentions for us are still good? Because you laid down your life and you suffered like I never could. You're always good. Always good. Always good. Always good. Let's pray. Father, as we rise to respond now in singing of your steadfast faithfulness, as we call out to you, our rock, we pray that you would strengthen our faith even in this moment as we respond to your word and gather around the Lord's table together where we see that ultimate act of sacrifice. We hear the son lamenting. We see the son humbly laying down his life. We see the son holding on to what he knew. And we pray, Lord, that our response would be fitting and that you would continue to nourish us as we take the bread and the cup together. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to respond by singing together of the faithfulness of God, and we're going to make this our song, our prayer that helps us prepare to gather around the Lord's table together. If you're here with us and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you're in good standing with your local church, you're welcome to share in this meal of remembrance with us. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you not to take the bread or the cup, but instead to use this as a chance to just think about what's holding you back from knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as your own Lord and Savior. If you walk past the table and you're intending to take communion and you didn't pick up the bread and the, uh, and the cup, um, please just take a moment now during this song to nip to the back there and get what you need so that we're all settled and ready to remember the Lord as he appointed after the song. Let's stand together and praise.